Our message this morning comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and chapter 12. We will be reading an excerpt from each chapter, and we'll start reading in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 at verse 3. These are the words of God. I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. I made my works great. I built myself houses. I planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools, verse 7. I acquired male and female servants. I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the providences. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done, and on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. And verse 24, Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink, and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. For who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I? For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. But to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting, that he may give to him who is good before the Lord." Then skipping to chapter 12 at verse 1. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come. In verse 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is man's all. Our God and Father, we pray now open these deep and magnificent words that you put in the mouth of your servant Solomon so many years ago that are so relevant for us today. Help us to understood what he understood, that our young ones, that our teenagers would grow up straight and tall and strong and mighty in the spirit, that they might be great and good and know your blessing and your happiness. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, teenagers, last week we looked at the topic of greatness. And we saw that pursuing greatness is right and good as long as it is biblical greatness you're pursuing in a biblical manner. Because if you're doing that, then you're going to find yourself like Daniel and his teenage friends. You're going to find yourself pursuing the living God and his glory and the glory he gives. You're going to find yourself seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness You're going to find yourself serving his bride, the church, which is his family, his household, his children. And you're going to find yourself sharing in Christ's own glory 
even as the Father intended from the beginning. Now this week, we want to look at this other really big topic, happiness. And we're going to see the same things. Pursuing happiness is right and good if it is biblical happiness you're pursuing and you're pursuing it in a biblical manner because then you're going to find yourself once again pursuing the living God, his happiness, his blessing, and the blessing and happiness he gives. You're going to find seeking that his will be done not your will. You're going to find yourself seeking the blessing and happiness of his bride, the church, which is his family, his household, his children. And you're going to find yourself sharing in Christ's own happiness, his own blessing, his own joy, even as the Father intended from the beginning. But I want to go into this topic specifically because in one sense, what do we need to say about happiness? Because pretty much everybody in the world is automatically pursuing it. Even those who think that life is by necessity suffering and therefore all that one can do is to try to to, um, rid oneself of caring. Still, at some point, such a person is hoping this minimization of suffering is going to connect up at some point with some happiness if some can be had or at least less suffering. But the thing is, as we look around, the vast majority of the people in the world and even many Christians are not really seeking happiness. I mean, they are, but they aren't because they're not seeking it effectively. They are running down paths, even many Christians are running down paths that will never lead to happiness. They're running down paths that promise happiness and even give temporary pleasures, but they never last. They never keep their promises. They always leave a person emptied out and leaving them unhappier than they were before. One of the biggest deceptions of life, even for Christians, is found in the failure to understand what happiness actually is, where it comes from, and how it must be pursued. And the Bible really speaks to this topic in in a thousand different ways from the beginning to end. But I want to look today at what the Bible teaches. And I want to point out five essential lessons the Bible teaches us about happiness. And the first one is this. Happiness is the gift of God. Happiness is the gift of God. James chapter 1 verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Every single good thing, every single thing you can receive in this world that actually blesses you, it has one character. It is a gift. It's not really something you can earn or steal or somehow grab for yourself or acquire. It's a gift. And it comes from one place. It comes from the Father of lights. Now this is such an important lesson. This is the lesson we see God teaching the children of Israel after he has brought them out in the Exodus. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses is going over this lesson. He's reviewing with the people how when God brought them out of the land of Egypt, he took them out into the the desert. He got them away 
from everybody else. He got them away from all their normal conveniences. He put them out where they're completely dependent upon him. And for 40 years, he put them in a situation where they could not eat if God didn't give them manna. Miraculously, manna every morning from heaven. Or quail that God has come in and land in the camp. Apart from that, they have no food. If they want to eat, they have to take the food from the hand of God day after day after day. Same thing with water. If they want to drink, God has to miraculously provide water from the rock. Again, no water unless God directly hands it to you by miracle day after day. He kept their shoes from wearing out. He kept their clothes from wearing out. He kept their feet from swelling for 40 years miraculously sustaining them what he's teaching them by putting them in a situation where they're like little infants for 40 years they're like little infants they can't receive anything unless it comes from daddy's hand there's nothing else they can have because he's trying to teach them the nature of life itself because he's going to move them after that 40-year period to a higher level of sophistication a higher level of expecting fruit and wisdom and maturity from them. But he has to drive home this fundamental lesson of life first so that they never forget it. Every good thing in this world is the gift of God. And if you try to take it, steal it, grab it, manufacture it, earn it, you try to do all of those things like you can grab it for yourself... You can eat and eat and eat and eat, but the one thing you can't do is produce taste buds in your mouth so you can taste it. And so the the nature of every good thing is the gift of God. When he brings them into the land of Canaan, it's very clear the very first time before they've even taken the city of Jericho, the very first time they eat of the fruit of the land, the manna stops. Now he wants them to grow up. He wants them to remember what they've learned in now a more sophisticated situation. Because now instead of handing them everything like their little children, now God is going to give them the power to make wealth themselves. You see? But he wants them to remember, even though now I'm bringing you to this higher level of maturity, and I'm going to give you the power to make wealth, to buy the things you need, All the lessons you learned are just as true. I'm giving you the power to make wealth, to buy what you need, but when you get what you need, it's still me who's handing it to you just as surely as I was giving you manna back in the desert. The nature of life has not changed at all. That's what he wants them to see. Now, you see, what happens is... When God gives us the power to make wealth, as he did them, as he does with us, the danger we run into is that we forget it is still the Lord giving us these things just as truly as if he was literally handing it to us. We forget God, and when we forget the giver, and we separate the gift from the giver, then the gift no longer is a gift in our eyes. We think we just earned it. We forget that it is a gift. 
When we, when we forget that it is a gift, we forget God, we forget to be grateful and thankful, and we become puffed up and pride, proud and self-sufficient. So we can never separate the gift from the giver. If we keep the gift and giver together and realize of the nature of this, this is a gift, this is the blessing of God, it comes from God, then we, are, we do not become proud, we become humble. If we detach the gift from the giver, the more valuable the gift, the prouder we become. But if we remember it is a gift and we give thanks to God, the more valuable the gift, the more humble we become and the more thankful we become. That is the way that it's supposed to be. So, the very first major essential lesson about happiness is it is the gift of God. That brings us to the second essential lesson, which is this. Happiness is rejecting the world's lie that I can obtain happiness for myself. Happiness is rejecting the world's lie that I can obtain happiness for myself. This is the constant message of the world from the devil to Eve in the Garden of Eden and to today. We get it from a thousand different voices, from a thousand different sources every single day. Happiness is something that you can obtain for yourself if only you can obtain a certain look. Or if only you could obtain a certain personality. Or if only you could obtain a certain intelligence. Or if only you could obtain a certain talent. Or if only you could obtain a certain level of wealth or certain types of possessions or some combination of these. If only you could obtain one of these things or a certain combination of them, then you would be admired and desired and happy. And when you think that way, which is the way we're constantly taught to think, life becomes a roller coaster. Up and down you go as you compete with others, whether in person or on social media. But this up and down roller coaster does not produce happiness. It produces self-focus, self-preoccupation. It produces insecurity and it produces misery because you're constantly in any given setting, whether in person, whether on social media, you're always having to compare the hand you've been dealt with the hand others have been dealt. And if you happen to be in a situation where you feel like you've got the best hand in the room, then you're feeling pretty good. But it's pride. It's arrogance. You're feeling haughty. But when you're in a situation when it's pretty clear somebody else has been dealt a better hand, now you're down in the dumps. Now you're low. And up and down we go. There is no happiness that comes from this way of thinking. But people keep going back to the well again and again on this because they think, well, you know, I got a little bit of the look. 
that I'm supposed to have, and I got a little bit of the personality I'm supposed to have, and I got a little bit of this and that, this winning combination so that I can be happy. But obviously, I didn't get enough. I just need to get more of the look and more of the personality and more of this and that so I can be happy, and then off people go on the roller coaster once again. This never results in happiness, and this is what Solomon is writing about in our sermon text. Because you see, Solomon in God's providence was the one man in history who had it all. And yet, it left him empty and unfulfilled. He was the one man in history who um, not only had a certain intellect, He was the wisest man in the world, other than the Lord Jesus, the wisest man who's ever lived. People came from all around. Other kings and queens came to ask him questions. He was the wisest, the smartest man in the world. He was the richest man in the world. He was the most famous man in the world. He was the most admired and desired man in the world. The world. He was the most accomplished man in the world, the things that he built. And his reputation went out across the world. And we have the account of the, the Queen of Sheba traveling a great distance to come and see Solomon because she's heard all these things about him. She has to see if it's really true. She has to see for herself. And so she comes in a great caravan with all of her retinue. And then she gets there, she meets with Solomon, she spends quite a bit of time with him, asks him every difficult question she can think of, none of which are any problem for him whatsoever. And basically the effect of Solomon's knowledge, his intellect, the the beauty, the beauty of his architecture, his wealth, just everything, she said, I had no breath left in me. He just took my breath away. It was, in other words, it was so much more than she had even heard or could imagine. And yet, so Solomon was able to take each one of these roads, whether it's wealth or talent or personality or popularity or intellect or what have you. He he could take every one of those roads all the way to the end of the road. And when he got there, because he did it at a time that he had turned away from the Lord, he did it on his own. He did it because he could. And he found that all of it left him completely empty and unfulfilled. Verse 11 of chapter 2. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done. All was vanity. The Hebrew word here literally means vapor. It was all vapor. There's nothing... There's nothing there. It was grasping for the wind. There's no profit under the sun. And then he starts coming to the conclusions because he's going to come back to the Lord. Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. But how do you get this? This also was from the hand of the Lord. This is the gift of God. Fulfillment. Happiness, blessing, joy, this is the gift of God. And because he reasons in verse 25, who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I? 
Nobody could touch the level of stuff and fame and power and wealth and admiration and everything else that, that Solomon had. Nobody could touch it. And yet he's the one who is feeling unhappy, emptied out, hollow, and unfulfilled. He says in verse 26, God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. But to the sinner who is out there busy running on the roller coaster to happiness, he's busy gathering and collecting that he may give it to him who is good before God. So then in chapter 12, Solomon brings it all together to the final conclusion. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come. He's talking about old age. So teens... This is what Solomon is saying to you. You are going to come to agree with Solomon. There's absolutely no doubt you are going to agree with Solomon. The question is, when? Are you going to do it when you're 70? And you look back and go, Solomon was right. And you're looking back over many years of regret and waste? Or are you going to do it now? And that's what Solomon says. Remember your now your creator in the days of your youth. You are going to agree with him. Do it now. So that you can live your life according to wisdom. And you can experience the gift of God in the blessing and happiness that he gives. And then he says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Here's the wisest man in the world, and he makes it so simple. Fear God, reverence God, walk with God, and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. In other words, there's only one doorway that you can walk through to blessing, fulfillment, and happiness, and this is it. There is no other. And that brings us to the third essential lesson the Bible teaches us about happiness, which is this. Happiness is realizing that God knows more and cares more about my happiness than I do. Happiness is realizing that God knows more and cares more about my happiness than I do. This was the lesson that Eve learned in the Garden of Eden, at the Garden of Eden. In Genesis, when we read about it, the devil's message to Eve basically boiled down to this: What possible good and valid reason could God have for putting this one tree off limits? When obviously it's beautiful, there's nothing wrong with it. It's beautiful, it's desirable, even as the other trees. Indeed, it's even more desirable because it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And don't you need the knowledge of good and evil? It's desirable to make you wise. Why would God put this off limit? God knows that eating of this tree will make you like him. And he doesn't want that. He wants to hold you down. Your interests, Eve, and God's interests are not the same thing. Your happiness and his happiness are not aligned. 
God does not know as much or care as much about your happiness as you do. You need to take charge of your own happiness. You need to reach out and take and eat. Now, all of this turned out to be the exact opposite of the truth. God's plan was precisely for Adam and Eve to become like him, to walk with him, to reflect his character, to rule in his name over the earth, to share in his work and in his joy and in his glory. That was his plan from the beginning. That's why he placed the tree of the knowledge of good and evil off limits, while at the same time surrounding Adam and Eve with good gifts in every direction as proof of his love and glorious intentions for them. Think about it. What did they know about who God was at the time of the temptation? They knew that God did not have to make them in his own image, but he did. They knew that God did not have to create a beautiful garden where he personally met with them and fellowship with them, but he did. They knew that God did not have to give them the tree of life and tell them to freely eat of it, but he did. They knew that God did not have to commission them to rule over the earth in his name and bring it to fullness and glory, but he did. They knew that God did not have to make them a man and a woman, a son and a daughter, and then join them together in marriage. In fact, before the fall, Eve is referred to as Adam's wife. And then call upon them to share in God's creational work by having children in his image and filling the earth. He didn't have to do it that way, but he did. All of that they knew, which means they knew who. They knew who God was. They were surrounded by God's gifts, upfront and free, undeniable proof of God's love and his glorious intentions for them to share in his character, work, joy, and glory. But for them to share in all this, they must learn the key to walking with God and ruling in his name, even as Jesus had to demonstrate in his own temptation by the devil. Man must live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That was the lesson. And that's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4. Through creation and redemption, God has proven for all time that he knows and cares more about our happiness than we do. That's the foundation for the central lesson of life, which we find Solomon communicating to his own teenage son in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. This is what he tells his son. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge God and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. 
fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. That is the essential lesson. What's the basis of that lesson? God knows more and God cares more about your happiness than you do. That's the basis of that lesson. And that brings us to the fourth essential lesson about happiness, which is this. Happiness is not always pleasantness, but includes walking with God through trials and hardships so that we might become all that it means to be sons and daughters of God. Happiness is not always pleasantness, but includes walking with God through trials and hardships so that we might become all that it means to be, sons and daughters of God. Job 5, verse 17. Notice the language here. Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. So here is a man who is happy, but he's not having fun. He's happy, but it's not pleasant right now because God's correcting him. But happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore, do not despise the chastening, literally the training of the Almighty. For he bruises, which is not fun, but he binds up. He wounds, but his hands make whole. Now the word happy here, Hebrew word esher, is often translated blessed. Sometimes it's translated happy. Sometimes it's translated blessing. In other words, to be under the objective blessing of God. And that's the way it's used here in Job 5.17. When he says, happy is the man whom God corrects, what he means is, blessed is the man whom God corrects. Because this person is objectively under the loving care and blessing of God who is acting for this person's good. And therefore, they can be happy about that, even though what they're going through right now is not fun or pleasant. But this word, Asher, that can be happy or blessed, comes from another word, Ashar, that literally means to advance with the idea of advancing toward a goal. When we are in God's providence, advancing toward the goal for which he created and redeemed us, we are blessed, objectively so. Whether or not it is pleasant right now, whether or not we are having fun right now, we are happy, in other words, we will be glad that we went through these trials because they are advancing us toward the goal. And as we mature, we develop the habit of considering ourselves blessed and happy even in the midst of hardship and trials. This is one of the signs of maturity, teens, is that as you go forward in life and you start running into hardships and difficulties, in other words, Picture like you're floating a river and then all of a sudden you hit white water and it's bouncing you all around and it's, it's hairy. The thing is, as you get more mature, you have the ability to remember, wait a minute, God is writing this story 
and I have read his word, I know the kind of story he writes because I've seen it over and over. Where am I in God's story? Where am I right now getting bounced all around and jostled and so forth? I'm in the whitewater. That's where I am. What do I do now? Know where you are. Know where you are in God's story. It's not like everything has gone wrong. Okay, now what do you do? You deal with the situation according to where you are. And you get the ability to go, okay, Lord, thank you for putting me in the white water. I know that's where I am. Give me the strength that I need to trust in you and to honor you through this circumstance. That's what you do. That's maturity. That's where blessedness and happiness come from. James 1 verse 2 says, My brethren, count it all joy. He didn't say it's fun. He says count it all joy when you fall into various trials. The word for trial here means a test. It's a testing of faith. Now God is a good teacher. Why does a good teacher give a test? He doesn't give it so the students will fail. The good teacher gives the test so the students will succeed. That's why. So these various tests, why should we count it all joy? Well, you know that the testing, this is a different word here now. This means proof of genuineness. It is a test like you would test gold to to discern true gold from fool's gold. So God is giving a test to show the genuineness of our faith. The testing of your faith produces patience, literally steadfastness, that which is able to bear up and stand in the face of hardship and difficulty. He says, but let patience, let steadfastness have its perfect work. What is God doing through this? That you may be perfect. Now, this word here for perfect, it doesn't mean simply flawless. What it means is that you might reach the goal, the goal for which you were created and saved and be complete, lacking nothing. So think about it this way, teens. Think about good books or movies that you've seen and the kind of character in a book or movie that you are drawn to, that you admire, that you identify with, and you want to be like. Does that character have an easy life, free of challenges and full of easy pleasures? Are they just sitting around all the time, hanging out, texting and TikToking and Instagramming with their friends? End of story? No. That's not the kind of character you are drawn to. That's the ones who show character in the midst of trial and difficulty. Now compare the kind of life that the characters we admire live with the kind of life we tend to want to lead. We want to lead an easy life free of trials, full of easy pleasures. But if you put that kind of character in a book or movie, would you find them interesting? No. And you certainly would not admire them or be inspired by them or want to be like them. In fact, you probably wouldn't even like them. 
This is the principle that God is applying in our lives. He's not leaving us to ourselves so that we just sink down into our ease and we become characters whom no one would like or find interesting. God is turning us into characters that people would admire and be inspired by. That's why God demands that we trust and walk with him in the midst of difficulty and hardship. God is not pushing us down when he puts us through trial and hardship. He is lifting us up. He is making us noble. He is making us like him. Even with Jesus, who had no sin to be sanctified out of his life, this is the same path he walked, facing trial and hardship, facing death and the devil, that he might stand up to his full height and reach the goal of being all that it means to be the Son of God. Jesus walked that path. Are we too good for it? No, we're called to walk the same path. And that brings us to the fifth and final essential lesson the Bible teaches us about happiness. Happiness is blessing others as God has blessed you. Happiness is blessing others as God has blessed you. Think about when God called Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, starting at verse 1. God says to Abraham, get out of your country from your family and your father's house to a land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Now, in our English, that last phrase, you shall be a blessing, that reads as an indicative. It's not an indicative in the Hebrew. It's an imperative. It's a command. God says, literally, I will bless you and make your name great, and you be a blessing. That's the way it reads in the Hebrew. You be a blessing. And then God promises in verse 3, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is the way it works. God blesses us, and we become a blessing. And that is integral to happiness. But this process will never work as long as we are competing with others for looks and smarts and popularity and wealth and status so we can be happy. It only works when we know God. It only works, and let me just tell you something I've observed over many years, Teens, and I've done a lot of different things in life. I've served in the military. I've served in a, a number of different jobs. I've, I've seen a lot of things. You know, the very few number of people in my life that I've actually known who really were happy, fulfilled, content, they were not the best-looking people in the world. They were not the prettiest women. They were not the most handsome men. They were not the tallest. They were not the most talented. They were not the smartest. They did not have the most scintillating personalities. They were not those people. But one thing that did characterize all of them is they got happiness. They got it. 
They had a relationship with the living God. They got it that every good thing is the gift of God. They got it that, and they rejected the world's lie that they could just concoct happiness for themselves. They realized that God knew more and cared more about their happiness than they did. They realized that happiness is not always pleasantness, but includes walking with God through trials and hardship so that they might become all that it means to be sons and daughters of God. They got it that happiness meant them blessing others as God had blessed them. And realizing all of those things, you know what it made them? It made them content. Now, content, that sounds passive to us. No, content is not passive. Biblical contentment is very active. It is an active trust in God. It is an act of walking with God. The only happy people I've known had that. They had it when they were single, and they had it when they were married. That's what they had. And God gave them the gift of happiness. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.